Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. As always, I'm asking you to dig deep and join us on patreon.com forward slash Tortoise Shack. The link is in the top of the podcast you're about to listen to. It's cheaper than the price of a pint nowadays, but the few quid from you helps keep us independent, ad-free, sponsor-free, and not having to worry about any sort of editorial interference. So think of it as the easiest bit of activism you can do, and you'll be helping to keep a left-leaning progressive podcast going. It really is that simple. We don't exist without your support. So one more time, patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshek. I'll shut up now, I promise. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn. I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast today by Grace Blakely, who listeners are probably aware is a quite a high-profile economist, analyst, uh, writer for the Tribune in um, the UK, and has a new book coming out uh, early next year, which is called Vulture Capitalism, which um, exposes, as it says, the capitalist central planning that dominates our societies, and listeners will be well aware that we have talked a lot about vulture capitalism capitalism vulture funds on this podcast grace i'm delighted to have you on reboot republic thank you so much for inviting me it's great to be here yeah listen we can't um start talking now without talking briefly if that's okay about gaza um and the horrific horrific situation that is uh currently ongoing and looks like it's going to get worse um in terms of your own take of what's happening, what's your analysis of it, and how, where do you think it's going? Look, when this latest round of violence um, kind of came out uh, just a, a, over a week ago, um, I was obviously, you know, surprised at it happening now, but not surprised at seeing the cycle of violence continue because anyone who has been following what has been going on in Palestine over the last, I mean, you know, the last decade, but particularly, um, you know, the last kind of uh, five to 10 years, um, will have seen the astonishing escalation in violence against Palestinian people, the controls that have been imposed on their movements, um, the uh, just kind of oppression that has existed throughout Palestinian society and people's daily lives being denied water, basic services. Um, and, you know, it's been this kind of steady uptick in the control and repression and violence that has led various different human rights organizations to characterize what's been going on in Palestine as apartheid. Um, and the trouble is, of course, is that we don't see any of that. Most people looking at the conflict today think of it through the lens of, you know, what was going on in the 1990s. They don't really understand the way that the Israeli state has stepped up the violence and oppression against Palestinians in recent years under this extraordinarily right-wing government, um, the successive extraordinarily right-wing governments that we've had uh, in Israel, primarily under Benjamin Netanyahu, who is now, by the way, experiencing um, a real massive pushback within his own society because people recognise the fact that it's been his policies who've actually put them in danger. So it's horrific what's going on at the moment. It is horrifying to watch in real time. It is terrifying. It is saddening. But if you have any awareness of the history of this region and this conflict, it's not a surprise. No, it's not a surprise. And and I think it is something that we're hoping 
that at some level the expressions of solidarity with Palestine of of outrage at the idea that you know what Israel appear about to do that that might have some influence on governments to pressure them not to go in not to go in and do what they'd like to do do you think that's possible is there is there a role for us here as public citizens to take action on this and try and somehow influence or do you think it's foregone that Israel are going to um unleash their terror on Palestinians in the coming, as they are doing right now. Yeah, look, the Israeli state is aware of the international response to his actions and is sensitive to that. And there is debate in Israel at the moment based on the reaction that has been seen around the world. Um, You know, if uh, states like the US, uh, the UK, the European Union simply move forward and say Israel has an unrestricted right to self-defense, and when they're asked, is, does that include, you know, committing war crimes? And they basically say yes. Then the Israeli state looks at that and thinks, right, OK, great, we can do whatever we want. But when there is yeah. pushback within those societies where those governments have said those things and elsewhere around the world, then I think that is definitely registered. And, you know, we saw already um, that the US state put some pressure on uh, Netanyahu to kind of turn the water back on in inverted commas yeah. after basically uh, that the government was accused of a war crime and shutting off water and electricity because that's collective punishment, which is a war crime. Um, and of course, you know, yes, they turned the water back on, but the pipes and the infrastructure were so damaged that it's still basically impossible for people in Palestine to get clean water. Nevertheless, it is quite clear that Israel is listening to the rest of the world, that the Israeli government is listening to the rest of the world. Um, and there are definitely concrete actions that people can take. So, Obviously, writing to one's political representatives um, is important, but um, I've recently been contacted by people within Palestine who've been organising with Palestinian trade unions who are asking for expressions of support from trade unions around the world, and particularly those trade unions who represent members in the arms industry, because um, I don't know if this is as much of an issue in Ireland, but certainly in the UK and the US, there will be uh, there are British companies who are supplying weapons to the Israeli state that are being used to slaughter Palestinians. Um, so there is definitely a pressure point there that can be used. Um, and anyone who is a member of a union um, should really consider their own union's position on this and maybe think about organising within that union to try and get an expression of support and even to go one step further and maybe say we will not, we, you know, if we're organising within this company that supplies weapons to the Israeli state to be used against Palestine, that's, you know, we will shut down operations. You actually saw a success, uh, a successful campaign last year where um, some, uh, I think it was dock workers in various countries around the world uh, refused to unload shipments of arms that were heading to Israel. So there's definitely something that can be done there. Yeah, absolutely. And and also the just for listeners who are probably well aware, but again, the Ireland-Palestine Solidarity Campaign has been organising protests and vigils and events that people can check out as well. Um, just to move on, Grace, and it is very difficult to move on, um, but, you know, we're planning to talk about, and we hope to talk about it, I'd heard you recently speak, um, actually, at the Left Bank uh, Social Democrats uh, event, and you were talking about inflation and the greedflation, uh, and it was fascinating, I think, in terms of it, because you presented an economic analysis to me that is completely devoid um, in so much of the mainstream economic analysis of inflation and also the other side of that, this idea, which we've just had our budget here 
Um, and it was argued, I don't know if you saw it, or, uh, the, the government here has a surplus of, of 8 billion euros this year. And they decided not to invest it, but to put it in this rainy day fund, as they call it, which, of course, will be a future bank bailout fund. And uh, deeply, Same. ironically... Same. Uh, and cruelly um, end up investing in pension funds like real estate investment trusts who will jack up the rents on the people rather than providing housing. But they argued part of the reason they couldn't invest it was because of inflation and that it would, you know, essentially, uh, you know, the economy is at full capacity. We can't invest it. What, you know, just for listeners, I think it would be really interesting. Firstly, kind of present your analysis of inflation and kind of the causes of it and what you talked about that um kind of greedflation and, and the cost of greed crisis. Um, and maybe then a little bit we'll talk about, you know, what can governments do in this context in terms of particularly around investment? Yeah, so I'll try to explain this uh, relatively briefly because it can be quite technical, but I'll do my best. <laughs> um, so the kind of mainstream views about inflation um, are broadly in two camps, one of which is focuses more on um, cost pushflation and the other one focuses on demand pull inflation. So cost push inflation is inflation that's driven by um, uh, what economists would call an exogenous shock. So a shock that you couldn't have predicted from within the mainstream models, whether that is an ecological shock or a political shock or just a supply shock. That means that um, goods or commodities uh, in one area become more expensive. And this is generally a kind of sector specific shock. So the one yeah. that we're used to thinking about and the one that we've you know, several times is obviously oil, um, because and fossil fuels in general, because those um, not only are used to transport all the goods that go around the world economy, to heat homes, to do transport, all those sorts of things. They're also um, they also go into the production of a lot of goods and and commodities. So, oil obviously a key component in plastic. You have um, natural gas being used in fertilizers. Uh, so, you know, those fossil fuels are really just like the central um, commodities that underpin the functioning of modern capitalism. So when we see a, a price increase, that then cascades throughout the rest of the system and pushes prices up everywhere else. Now, this is quite clearly what we've seen happen um, really since the pandemic. So we had that big increase in oil prices as a result of the resumption of um, kind of, you know, in inverted commas, normal trading after the pandemic. Mm. And we also saw the war in Ukraine, which pushed up natural gas prices, as well as the prices of certain other commodities. And then there were these kind of sector specific um, supply side issues that had been driven by the uneven recovery from the pandemic. So things like it was impossible to get semiconductors, for example, which made it difficult to kind of produce new cars, which create this yeah. big um, spike in prices in, um, in used cars. So that's one way of looking at it, which is basically that shocks lead to higher prices in one particular sector that then kind of cascade throughout the rest of the economy. The other and, way... And there actually are real, like there were actually real price increases to real commodity prices within that. Yeah, sorry. So this is uh, a case of there being a shock that makes it more difficult for us to produce the things that we had become used to producing before. Whether that's because, yeah. you know, the supply of a particular good has suddenly fallen because, I don't know, there's been a natural disaster or the technology that was being used to um, to produce that thing has, you know, stopped working or has been, um, I don't know, subject to some sort of problems. So it, it really is about an imbalance of supply and demand between that one particular commodity caused by something that's happened kind of 
you know, outside of the economy. It's not really outside of the economy, but it's outside of the models that econ- economists use to try and understand these things. Yeah, and then you were going, to, going on to say that in terms of then how that kind of filters into the rest of the economy and the impact then. Yeah, so the the second way of looking at things, rather than just this this way that looks at costs, is to focus on demand um, and yeah. this idea of demand pull inflation. Um, and basically, the kind of the assumptions that this model rests on is uh, it, it looks at the kind of the economy in the aggregate, so at the macro economy, and says we have a certain amount of of stuff, we have a certain amount of capacity in the economy to produce things. So if all of our resources were all put to use at the same time at their maximal capacity, this would be the way that the economy would work. This would be the output that we would produce, um, and that there is then a certain level of demand which is generally kind of below that level of potential capacity that actually determines how much GDP growth there is and how much inflation there is. So if, you know, for example, we've just had a big recession and everyone's a bit scared about the future, demand is going to be lower than the potential supply that the economy has because people are not going to be using all the resources they have available to them. Um, They'll be, you know, saving or kind of holding off on spending um, because they're worried about the future. So when you have that lag between demand and supply, you have lower rates of growth and lower rates of inflation. But when everyone's really confident about the future and they're all saying, we all want to spend now, we all want to start investing, um, you know, we want to build new factories, hire new workers, then suddenly more and more of those resources are getting used up until you reach the point where basically all of the economies or near all of the economy's resources are being used to the fullest extent possible. And yet people are still saying we want to invest more. And that's when you start to see higher rates of inflation, because there's this imbalance between the amount that people want to use and the amount that we have available in the economy. Um, And this this kind of demand pull inflation um, has generally been used as an explanation for inflation, where often kind of people on the right say that workers are demanding wage increases that are too high. So they're basically saying that if you provide workers with wage increases at this particular time, um, you're giving them too much money and there isn't enough stuff for them to buy. There isn't enough work for them to do. So that will create this imbalance between demand and supply at the the kind of macroeconomic level. Um, Now, you know, demand um, pull inflation does happen. There's absolutely no question about that. But which um, which kind of explanation you use has real political implications. And historically, it's been very easy for the right to say, basically, it's workers' fault that we're seeing inflation because they're demanding wage increases that are too high. And actually, what we've seen at the moment has been that it's really been costs that have been pushing up inflation. And then the problem that's happened on top of that, which we can maybe talk about in a minute, is that it's been big corporations that have embedded those inflationary expectations basically by hiking up prices. Yeah, and and that's where you talk about that cost of greed crisis and that, uh, you know, inflation is not like in in these corporations, but across uh, the economy and the market is essentially business and uh, all businesses see this is an opportunity for us to raise prices to increase profit without an actual justification of an underpinning increase in costs. Yeah, exactly. And this has also been termed excuseflation. 
um, yeah. as a kind of way of uh, encapsulating that idea that it's, you know, in the inflationary environment is being used as an excuse by corporations to raise prices more than you otherwise would have seen. But the real underlying factor that allows this to happen is um, kind of monopoly or oligopolistic um, market structures. So it's yeah. basically uh, a few corporations that have a great deal of power, that have a huge amount of control over their markets, and they're able to use that control basically to set prices. And that isn't something that you would expect in a kind of competitive economic model, um, because you know, if even if you had this general inflationary environment and one corporation raised its prices, it would be surrounded by all these other corporations that would have lower prices, and consumers would all go to those ones. But because we have a few massive um, corporations that dominate a bunch of uh, of sectors, whether that's looking at the domestic economy or the global economy, really, um, that kind of corrective mechanism when it comes to prices doesn't work as quickly. It does kind of work over the long term. Um, and, and in some sectors, like most of the time, in some sectors, it doesn't actually tend to work. Um, but generally speaking, when you have this level of market power, it means that corporations are able to get away with charging higher prices for longer without that pushback for, from consumers or actually regulators. Um, because, yeah, regulators haven't really taken much of an interest in price fixing over, you know, since the neoliberal turn, really. Um, so that has really meant that prices across the economy are higher. You see this most obviously in the most kind of extractive monopolistic sectors like, you know, utilities, for example, where there's obviously a kind of natural monopoly there. So there's no real competition. So it's been easy for those firms to push up prices, but also in fossil fuels, in, you know, agrochemicals in all these kind of obscure sectors that um, produce the inputs for every single sector in the rest of the economy. And um, there has been this kind of basically price gouging behavior. Um, and you see that reflected in just the astonishing profits that have been made by some companies in these sectors, often, and in fact, generally at the expense of consumers and always at the expense of workers. And so, no, it, it's very, very interesting. I think it's so true. And, and even in the area of housing here, for example, we have that oligopoly between a very small number of very large developers in terms of the the kind of control of of the market um who can essentially you know charge the prices they want to charge but on top of that then you have behind that the access to finance and the very limited access in terms of there's a monopoly of control of finance too the financing that's available and increasingly that has come from investor funds vulture funds real estate funds and maybe we could go move on to, um, maybe you could give us a sort of some of uh, a preview of kind of what is your, your kind of the case, what you're, you're talking about in vulture capitalism, if you can. Sure. I mean, I'm going to get in trouble for my publishers for saying this. So you guys are getting a. a <laughs> it's all right. Our listener peak. isn't, the listenership is big, but it's probably not that big that okay, your cool. publisher so might pick up on. <laughs> um, no. So basically the argument in the book is that we're told we live in this free market economy like the economy I mentioned where, you know, one firm raises their price and then it gets mm. outcompeted by all these other firms. And that there's this very clear separation between the economy and politics. So you have the market, which is the realm of economics and firms, and then the state, which is the realm of politics and politicians and political actors. And those two things are quite separate. Now, firstly, we don't live in a free market economy. We live in an economy that's highly concentrated for all the reasons that we've just outlined. But also there isn't this clean separation between politics and economics that we you know, are led to believe. Actually, we have um, a huge amount of cooperation 
among large monopolistic corporations, financial institutions, state actors, and um, kind of international organizations. And that tends to reinforce the interests of the powerful. Um, so rather than having this kind of decentralized democratic free market system where kind of, you know, the consumer is sovereign and um, gets to, you know, make all of these informed decisions and their freedom is completely guaranteed. Actually, most of the systems that govern most of our lives are kind of controlled and dominated by this constellation of interests across the public and private sector, uh, which basically acts to reinforce the interests of capital. Now, you know, there's lots of examples of how this works in the book. Uh, but you know, real estate is a really good example of this. Um, so, you know, you've mentioned the real estate investment trusts that exist mm -hmm. throughout um, Ireland and have become these massive corporate landlords by buying up assets on the cheap and then hiking up rents. If you look at um, how that industry works, it's obviously highly monopolistic. There are a few well, oligopolistic. There are a few firms that really dominate that market. Um, and part of the reason for that is that it's also a market that is really governed by the state. So all of those firms will have very close relationships with actors within the state. The regulatory environment that governs that relationship will largely be um, kind of influenced and manipulated by those yeah. firms. Um, and at the same time, um, the general kind of thrust of macroeconomic policy is also influenced by these firms. So you get, you know, these massive bailouts for finance, uh, financial institutions and real estate companies after these crises that they have caused, even though, you know, we're also being told there's no money left for the average consumer or the ordinary person. Um, and, you know, you also get things like central bank interventions that prop up the interests of the finance sector and of real estate. Um, and this kind of, you know, constellation of policy choices that all work to reinforce the interests of, um, yeah, like those, those large real estate companies and the financial institutions that, that lend to them. All the while we're told that this is a free market system. The market will decide who gets what. And actually the market isn't deciding anything. It's the, the executives of these large corporations combined with their mates in, you know, the regulatory institutions and in politics who are making active decisions about who gets what whilst telling us that it's the free market that's deciding. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I've written about this as well in, in uh, my last two books and Ireland is an interesting case study in terms of that, the crossover in actually not just, you know, interest, but direct individuals who move from, you yeah. know, state companies who were involved in selling off our public assets from, uh, we call it, it was NAMA was the name of it set up um, to offload the distressed assets after the crash. And the very people who were involved in selling those distressed assets to real estate funds then went and worked with the real estate funds and now work with the real estate funds um, or developers developing those assets. So directly benefiting um, from it and also former political parties of the, the two ruling parties, two dominant parties as well, have gone between them, act as lobbyists on their behalf. Um, and it is... What's interesting, I think, and, and maybe get your reflections on this, is the way in which this is something different than existed 40 years ago, this financialized form of vulture capitalism, that there is almost kind of this 
um, it's more than a, this could refer to as a bifurcation in the economy between like the, the real economy and then the financial economy. But mm. it's actually almost like you've the corporate economy there, the large corporations, you know, in tech and producing, you know, mm. and making billions in profit. Then you've the financial firms um, and they're operating and then you've the rest of the economy. And it's like this hoovering up of kind of wealth of income into these core parts. And that is not how the economy used to work. And of course, the financialized element is really about extracting wealth for wealth funds of the wealthy. That's what it's about. And you say, of course, it's pension funds and into to pensions. But there's something deeply and, and, you know, economists, Marxist economists and others have analyzed this. And it's deeply unsustainable and, and, and deeply risky as well. Um, and volatile and what's your analysis like has the how fundamentally um has capitalism changed in this form of financialized vulture capitalism from the keynesian period yeah so in the book i actually look at the trans the neoliberal transition and try and analyze what's changed and what stayed the same and my argument is that you've always had central planning within capitalism so this idea that mm. we lived in free market societies where yeah, as I said, you know, we have lots of little small corporations and complete separation between the government and uh, and the corporate world. It's never been the case. Um, so going all the way back to, you know, like the East India Company, for example, which was this joint venture between this large corporation and the British states, there's always been this, this overlap. Um, but there have been real transitions in terms of who that planning works for. So the Keynesian yeah. period was an interesting period because it was a... Uh, um, an era during which you had kind of overt democratic planning and governance of the economy, which was based on this coalition between workers, business interests and bureaucrats within the state. So you had this, you know, Keynesian social democratic consensus whereby you had, you know, centralized um, collective bargaining or at least collective bargaining that was supervised in some way or another by the state. You had um, workers that were able to kind of pressure governments or lobby governments into adopting certain kinds of policies and often had an active voice through political parties within what was going on in the state. Um, and when the neoliberals came in, they said, we object to central planning in general because it's inefficient and it doesn't work. But what they actually objected to wasn't central planning in general, it was central planning that included the voices of workers. So the idea of the neoliberal shift wasn't to get rid of planning and introduce free markets, which is what they said was the goal. It was actually to take workers out of the planning process and replace them with kind of um, financial interests, basically. So instead of kind of workers, bosses and the state planning, you now have kind of financiers, bosses and the state engaged in this process of of, uh, of planning of the economy. Um, and, you know, that is what's given us the kind of economy we have today, the one in which is characterised by frequent crises by high inequality, uh, by climate breakdown, by, you know, the bailouts that we constantly get for the, the wealthy whilst working people are told that there are no money left. Um, this is not a free market system. It's not what the neoliberals claimed that they wanted to create. It is a centrally planned system. It's just a centrally planned system that excludes the interests of workers. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Um, and because it's you're absolutely right to point out that they because there's almost then this false 
debate, this straw man debate all the time between, oh, should the state be interfering less or, you know, should you have control of the market and, you know, you really just need to let, you need to let the market work. And, you know, in housing, we hear it all the time, but you hear it in the wider economy, you know, the state shouldn't be regulating rents or regulating um, the market because it just needs to be let work. But then on, on, in parallel with that, and all the time, those very neoliberals and those very private enterprise are getting subsidies, want more subsidies, are, you know, very exactly. happy for the state to enforce its laws through police enforcing evictions or um, that there is this symbiotic relationship between capital and the state. And I think, though, what what's interesting as well is, and um, I was reading Eric Fromm recently, I don't know if you've, yeah. uh, you have, um, his, his book called, um, it's To Have or To Be, I think is the title, but he talks a lot, it's interesting when, when I was thinking about around freedom, and of course, mm-hmm. at the heart of the neoliberal uh, kind of selling point to people in the 1980s was this idea in 1990s and still today is that you know under capitalism at least you are free you are free to be yourself to pursue Mm. the dreams and interests you want to pursue we will never hold you back like an alternative uh whatever you want to call it socialist cooperative society would be that just puts limits on you and actually, you know, he sets out brilliantly how it's a complete illusion. And I think it's interesting, I don't know if you write about it, that there's the market freedom concept, but then there's the individual freedom concept, which is a complete myth as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, I contrast the various different views of freedom that are put forward by different political persuasions. So there's this, and you know, obviously you have to take this with a pinch of salt because when the neoliberals say they value individual freedom, they don't, you know, they, we actually live in these kind of tightly surveilled, highly oppressive societies where individual freedom is, is highly kind of um, hemmed in. But if we just look at these kind of views of freedom in the abstract, you have this neoliberal view of individual freedom, right? Which is the idea that everyone should be able to do whatever they want all the time. Mm. Um, And uh, the, the idea that, you know, freedom basically amounts to like freedom from constraint, so as long as you're free to do what you want, then, yeah. you know, nothing really matters. And obviously the critique of that, it doesn't account for pre-existing inequalities and, you know, all those different sorts of things. And then um, often on the left, you have this view of freedom that's put forward that's like, um, you know, your freedom is as an individual, the freedom to kind of be able to do whatever you, um, you know, not whatever you want as such, but like that your uh, the constraints on your ability to pursue what you want that come from, let's say, unfair market outcomes or inequalities in the status of your upbringing or whatever, that those freedoms that hem you in from that perspective should be removed or um, kind of undermined by the action of the state. Mm. So you have like, you know, individual freedom understood as um, as freedom of choice and individual freedom understood as kind of, um, you know, freedom from constraint that's imposed by a lack of resources, let's say. Um, and what I look at in um, in the book is the kind of the Marxist idea of freedom, which is the freedom that lies at the intersection between the individual and the collective. So it's not just about individual freedom and your your freedom to do what you want it is about that but it is also about our collective freedom to shape the conditions of our existence 
So it's the idea of freedom, the freedom that you have by participation in a community, the freedom to set the laws according to which you are governed, the freedom to kind of set the rules and norms according to which you are governed, the freedom to basically like construct a system within which you live and to have some influence over how that system works. And we basically don't have that at all in the kind of individualistic societies in which we live today. We have this very limited idea of representative democracy that gives you one vote every four years between two parties who are often basically the same or three parties who have very little difference between them. Um, so, you know, I really put forward this idea that that Marx had of this, I, this view of human freedom based on the idea that the worker is an architect, not a bee. That's a, a quote from Marx where he says, you know, the thing that differentiates the work, uh, sorry, the architect from the bee is that the bee and the, or the spider, for example, these but these insects can kind of weave these amazing structures and create these beautiful, um, really complicated designs. But the difference between that and an architect is that the architect imagines what he's going to do and constructs that vision in his own head before he goes out there and does it. And Marx thinks that this kind of creative capacity that human beings have is really hemmed in and repressed under capitalism. And that that needs to be put to work in the production process, but it also needs to be put to work in the way that we think about and design our societies. Yeah, very, very interesting. Listen, I appreciate you know you giving the time, and, and there's I have two more questions, if that's oh, all right. Of course. Um, the the first one, um, there are two kind of, and they're they're both linked, and and the first is the question of where do we want to go to? What is the alternative society? And the second one then is how do we get there? So right. two very easy, <laughs> two very easy questions. And the first one is that, you know, question of, of, you know, what is our alternative vision? And do we need, do you think that exists today in a non-stigmatized way that isn't, you know, just as soon as you put it up there, it's like, oh, that's just communist and that's failed. And, yeah. or, you know, is there a, because I see a lot in, in cooperatives and, you know, as an alternative way of constructing society that isn't necessarily, you know, tied in with all the failings and, you know, miss different ways socialism were put in place. But is there, yeah, I don't know, a new vision, I, you know, you've talked about in the Green New Deal, but is there something that is the alternative or do you think it's just straight up, no, we need to say it's socialism, that's the alternative? Or, you know, for you, what is what is the alternative and how important it is, I suppose, yeah, that, 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 that it's a vision that people can connect with. And a majority of people can connect and say, yeah, I want that as opposed to what we're living today. Yeah. So my view basically is that at this particular stage in history, and this was a view that was put forward by a Marxist theorist called Eleanor Meeskins Wood, is that at this stage in human history, true socialism and true democracy are basically synonymous. Um, mm. So that the socialist idea, the idea of democratic socialism is one in which we have control collective democratic control over all of the resources that are used to produce the things that we need. So that's basically control over the means of production, as well as true democratic control over our systems of government. Um, and so that means, um, yes, kind of public ownership um, and um, the provision of all sorts of collective services that we've become used to um, during the age of social democracy. But it also means more than that. It means, say, you know, if you have nationalized industries, that those industries are genuinely run by and for workers and by and for the community as a whole. So, you know, rather than just having politicians saying, do this, do that, you have boards comprised of worker representatives, society representatives, um, you know, uh, 
people from you know across the whole spectrum of society that are having an input into how the production process is taking place um and there are some re there are some examples of how this might work in the book i look for example at the lucas plan which was a plan that was put together by workers at lucas aerospace in the uk in the 1970s to try and transform that company from an arms manufacturer into a, a manufacturer of socially useful commodities and one that was governed based on principles of worker control um so that idea of democracy in the production process is one element and then how we deepen political democracy is another element so this is things like you know participatory budgeting where mm. um, citizens are able to engage in deciding how their local municipal budget is going to be spent um, just innovations that really bring power closer down to the people. And again, I've got lots of examples of how that might work in the book. Um, so I think, you know, that answers a bit of both of those questions in terms of like what we're we looking for and how do we get there. I do look in the book at uh, how this might look both from the bottom up and the top down. So I look at kind of already existing grassroots examples of kind of what I call democratic planning um, and how those were built and how we might build more of them. And then I look from the kind of top down perspective at the policy interventions that would be required to thoroughly democratize our society. So I look at democratizing the corporation, democratizing finance, democratizing the state and democratizing international institutions. So the question is, we have a wonderful vision. How do we get there? So, I mean, the transition is really all about building power. And this is a kind of, you know, very easy thing to say and a very, very difficult thing to do. It's not just the case that we can kind of go and vote for this program fully formed, because this is not something that is being offered by any of the major political parties. Um, and even if it was, it's something that would be kind of dramatically curtailed upon, um, you know, when if it was attempted to be implemented from within the British state or within any state, um, because you're coming up against so many vested interests. So the only way to really get around that is to try and build power. Um, and there's an element of this building power that, that is both a means and an end, which is that mm. when you can kind of create grassroots community organizations that are able, that run on the principles of democratic planning and also engage people in that process, you've built a kind of base of power within your local area, which also has the seeds of a new model within it. So it's both a kind of countervailing power and also an example of how we could do things differently in the future, um, which is really powerful. And again, there's lots of examples in the book as to how that would look. Um, but there are also the more kind of traditional forms of power building and resistance that we also need to think about. So that means worker organizing, organizing within corporations to push back against the power of uh, of bosses, um, which is, you know, the kind of standard, through kind of standard te techniques and tactics that the labor movement has been using for a very long time. But I talk about how that could be kind of part of a, a broader democratic struggle um, and what some of the goals and aims of that struggle might look like. There's also obviously the kind of wider um, movement of kind of, I don't want to just call it protest, but resistance to capitalism. Mm. So that involves, you know, participation in all of the kind of things that we're used to participating in on the left, uh, going to protests and um, doing sit-ins and doing direct action and all those sorts of things, which are, again, both useful to resist exploitation and oppression today and also in building communities and networks that can be used to kind of develop um, more positive and, and constructive models into the future. And then there is the realm of electoral politics as well. So um, thinking about how we can put pressure on elected representatives, how we can make sure that the right kinds of people are being put into positions of power 
um, and just that kind of long, slow process of institution building that's really required to get anywhere. And I think the thing is, is that it's not a zero sum game. It's not a case of like either we have democratic planning or we don't. This is always going to be a model that is in progress and that is in development. So, you know, there are many, many victories that can be won on the way towards building a more democratic society and that will be won on the way to to building a more democratic society. Um, And, you know, particularly when we think of climate, for example, you don't need this kind of fully democratized, decentralized ideal to be able to start pushing back against um, the interests of fossil fuel companies today. So I, again, outline in the book wins that can that we can expect from within the movement today, as well as the kind of longer term transformations that we might want to build over the long term. And just in terms of the politics, electoral politics, you're involved in the Labour Party. What's your analysis of where the Labour Party is at in the UK? And Well, I'm not really that involved in the Labour Party anymore, basically, because I've said I can't vote for or participate in a Labour um, administration or a Labour opposition that condones war crimes in Palestine, which is what Keir Starmer has done. Um, I don't know what's going to happen in the next election. It's highly likely that that Labour will result as the biggest party just because they are going up against a Conservative party that is utterly devoid of ideas and that is kind of losing, um, losing, you know, leadership and losing talent at every level and that is completely kind of broken they know that they need a period of opposition um so i think a lot of people in the tory party are quite happy to hand over the reins of power to keir starmer knowing that he's not going to change anything for four years and then probably come back in after that um i yeah i i I probably won't at this point vote for keir starmer um primarily because of this issue of of palestine i was kind of umming and ahhing and thinking, oh, well, maybe if he does some good things, it will be worth it and thinking mm. kind of strategically about it, which you have to in a two-party electoral system. But at a certain point, you know, it is your moral obligation not to vote for a party that you consider to be morally bankrupt. Um, so I will be probably doing some local organising and getting involved in maybe some independent campaigns, maybe looking at, I don't know, voting for the Greens or another party that uh, is more aligned with my values. And I think a lot of young people um, in the UK and actually now a lot of Muslims in the UK will be looking at doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And it, it is difficult. Um, one of the most difficult things, isn't it, that that's being in, you know, within organisations and within, you know, trying to make change versus being on the outside and, and that constant disagreements, understandably over different positions. And it makes it, you know, a lot of people say, oh, the left is so fractured and so splintered and it can't, you know, come together. And that, you know, that is re- as a result of real differences, you know, of opinions. But it is, I think, one of our biggest challenges is how to bring people together around meaningful change. That isn't. It's also, yeah, the structures that you use to bring people together. Like, I don't mm. think you can expect people to, like, you can kind of constructively engage in, in processes within a political party that you maybe aren't entirely aligned with. But when that political party diverges from you so much on so many of your basic principles, I don't really think you can be expected to kind of join and and advocate for that. But, you know, if we had a proportional electoral system, then if I was a part of a left-wing political party that did align more with my values, that party would then have to compromise with liberals and social democrats when it came to forming a government. So there's always going to have to be compromise. Yeah. It's just a question of what are the groups within that that uh, that process is taking place and like at what stage is that compromise taking place 
Yeah. Well, listen, Grace Blakely, thank you so much for giving the time this morning uh, and really looking forward to um, reading your new book, Vulture Capitalism, which will be out next year and people can check out um, your other books, lots of them there and writings you're writing for the Tribune. Uh, Yeah, listen, really appreciate that. Really interesting conversation. Thanks so much for joining me today on Reboot. Thanks so much for having me, Rory. It was great to be here. And yeah, Grace Blakely there is, you can check her out uh, on all the work she's doing on the Tribune um, and previous books she's had on financialization. And we're really looking forward to Vulture Capitalism coming up. You can listen back. We um, had some really, uh, really strong, powerful podcasts on Palestine recently. You can check them out and also on the housing crisis. Listen back. uh, One on hidden homelessness with Alison Byrne. Uh, As always, please, we're an independent media reliant on you uh, to keep the lights uh, on and the show on the road. So if you can become a patron, go over to patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. Please share the podcast around. Uh, Thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you all very, very soon.